Well, good morning. I am so appreciative. You guys prayed last week, and I'll, I'll tell you, when I left the building, all pain had elapsed. I was fine. So thank you so much for your prayers. <clears throat> Actually, I felt bad. I went to ER, and I, I was in no pain whatsoever, and uh, went through the whole experience there. I have never, I've never had to go to the hospital. How? My whole life. So you can imagine... Uh, well, minor things, but this was <laughs> different than any other experience that I've ever had. Thank you for your prayers. And, I, and I, out of this experience, we, we sat down and discussed a little bit about reworking our emergency procedures here in our church family. Uh, that would be a good thing to do. So we need an updated list of people who know first aid, CR, if you're a nurse or a doctor, please talk to Pastor Adam so we can put together a group, because about four years ago, we had a lady who had a heart attack, and uh, the, the, the medical people that came here said we probably saved her life, because we had to use the defibrillator on her, and there were people in our congregation that were actually able to rescue her. And so I'm just telling you, this is important. So this, this reminded us, you know, emergencies do happen uh, in our church from time to time, and I'll, I wanna just point one other thing to you. In your pews, have you noticed there's a little color there in your poop, probably at the end by the aisle there, there's a little uh, piece of uh, plastic. Do you notice that color there? Now, if you look around the doors, you'll notice there's colors around the doors here. I think there's a red one there, an orange one, and there's a blue one there. Uh, I can't, you know, the lighting here is making the colors difficult. But I'll just say this. Those pews are coded to those doors. So if we ever have an emergency, somebody will come up here and ask you to leave orderly out of the doors that are coded to your pew, so that not everybody tries to go out the same door, okay? Does that make sense? And then, here's the good news, don't even worry about your kids, they've already been instructed in the children's area, no, seriously. <clears throat> they will, no, we don't want you all rushing down there because they will already be out the building immediately. And so we have a mustard point behind that little building next door called the warehouse. That's where we will gather if there was an emergency in this building. Does that make sense to all of us? So just letting you know that you're aware if anything happens, because, you know, I, I wish there was never an emergency in life, but that's not reality, and that happens from time to time. Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. And Lord, we thank you that when we call out to you, you hear us, and I'm personally thankful that you move so powerfully in our lives. You're a prayer-answering God. We're going to see that today. Father, we pray today that you're going to open the eyes of our understanding. We're going to explore a very well-known text of Scripture in its context and begin to understand something profound about how we should live in difficult moments. I pray today that you would speak into our lives and that you would affect even an impact into our attitude so that it would affect the right kind of actions. So we pray that you'll start at the attitudinal level. We're thinking. I pray that we will hear your voice and it will shift the way we're looking at life so we'll move, Lord, from maybe a place of either no hope or false hope to a place of true hope. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. <clears throat> Today's message is entitled, Finding Hope When We Feel Confused and Forsaken. I don't know if you've ever had those moments. But I think all of our lives, there comes difficult moments in our lives where we're trying to work through issues. And I believe the text that we're going to look at today, uh, it it's actually might be the most 
popular biblical text currently. And it's found in the book of Jeremiah. And many of you know the text. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. Some of you can probably recite it by heart, but for those of us that may not know it by memory, here's the text. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. How many love that verse? I have to admit I love that verse. Some of you may have plaques. It's, uh, I see it in bags. I see it in plaques. I see it everywhere. That verse just comes at us from every which direction, and it's because it's such a hope-filled verse. But we're going to look today at its context, because we're going to discover that this verse was given to a group of people who were interpreting their lives as being difficult and at times unexplainable. They certainly felt confused, and at times they felt forsaken. How were they to move forward, this is the Jewish people, now that they were in exile? You know, now that they had, you know, God is disciplining them. So how do you even handle the discipline of God in our lives? And I believe there's one powerful word we need. It's the word hope. You know, as long as there's God, there's hope. We need to understand how powerful hope is. Without it, the will to move forward begins to disappear. We give up. Others try to secure hope in the wrong places, and they end up with what's called either a false hope you know, there's so many messages out there that people, when you're desperate, you're going to jump onto something and hang on to it. And if it's a false hope, you're going to be disappointed. Or you end up with no hope, and it just leads to darkness and despair. You just kind of give up. But today we're going to discover where the true hope is found and what can sustain us in the most difficult moments. <clears throat> so in our text today, we're going to see the process of God's discipline and how this was designed to bring about a change of thinking. You know, what we have to understand is before we're going to change behavior in our lives, we have to change the way we see things and think about things. It needs to be an attitude change. And you know what repentance is? Repentance is a change of mind. It changes a mind that we, we, it affects us so powerfully that it actually changes our behavior. It changes the course of our direction. So I see repentance as a very positive thing. You know, if you don't repent, you'll never get to God. If you don't repent, you'll never grow in God. So repentance is, you know, a lot of times we see it as a negative thing. I'm doing something wrong and I feel embarrassed, ashamed, or guilty about it. But I want you to move away from that for a minute and see repentance that it's a way of life. That as we're getting to know God, we're starting to see things from his perspective, and it may be different than ours, and we have to change our thinking about something and move towards the way God is showing us how he sees it, which may be different than how we're seeing it. So how were these Jewish exiles to move forward? Were they to resist the Babylonians? Should they join in the resistance movement? Think about it. Nebuchadnezzar didn't just conquer Israel. He conquered all of the Middle East. All of these groups of people were now being taken into captivity. Not everybody from all those lands, but really the upper, the upper class, the, the, the shakers and the movers, the aristocrats, the nobles, the people that had leadership roles, the artisans, the people that could really you know, make a society work. They were taken and they were enculturated in a new culture. They were literally trying to make them become Babylonians. We're gonna find out today how to respond when we feel people are putting pressure for us to conform to their way of thinking. I think this is important because, you know, if you look at the story in exile, there's some 
people named Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that are living in that moment, their names are changed to reflect Babylonian culture, and a lot of what they're doing there, you know, you have to understand why they did what they did. And we're going to get into that because I feel today we're at a very interesting moment even in our own time. I believe this message is extremely relevant. So, how were they to engage in this? Well, having just addressed the false hopes in the city of Jerusalem in the last few weeks, Jeremiah turns his attention to the exiles in Babylon. And here we pick up the story in chapter 29. He said, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people. Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So, you know, there's, there's actually three movements to Babylon. Most of us may not know that. There was the initial movement, then there was a secondary movement, and then finally, at the end, the destruction of the city. Okay? He says... This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skill workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. So now he's talking about the second displacement. Verse three, he entrusted the letter to Elasus, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and it said, we're about to explore God's message to these exiles. What's striking is the relevance. We know that what it's like to live in a fallen world. In one sense, you and I were designed by God to live with him forever. Isn't that neat? And we were designed to live in a society without sin and all of its destruction. Wouldn't it be awesome to be living right now in a world where there's no sin? Think about that now. No sickness, no sorrow, no death, no dying. No misunderstanding in relationships. Everybody is filled with love and goodness towards everybody else. You're going, wouldn't that be an amazing world? Isn't that what we long for in our hearts? I believe we long for this because God put it in our hearts, because we're moving towards that. You and I, as children of God, we have a, we have a promised land we're heading to. We feel like we're in exile right now. There's so many challenges in this world. It's frustrating at times, it's difficult. Sometimes it's perplexing, sometimes it's confusing. We're getting messages coming at us from every which direction and we're wondering, what is it that God wants us to understand? That's why we come back to the word of God. So the question I ask is, how are we to live our lives in this earthly exile when ultimately we were designed to live with God forever? How should we live while we are passing through this whole world below? How many think that might be a good thing to learn? I mean, if you're living in a, a world that's not exactly what God intended, how should we survive this exile that we're in? Even more importantly, how do we move forward when our personal worlds are crashing down on us? And we may quickly question where God may be in this moment in our lives. So Jeremiah is addressing the issue of hope to those who are struggling and had lost hope. He's also speaking to those who are now resting in false hope because he knows that they're believing lies that will prove to be disappointing, disillusioning, and actually dangerous if they embrace it. So there are three things I think we can learn from Jeremiah's message of how to live in difficult times while waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. Because you know, in our lives we can pray and God gives us a promise, but between the moment I get the promise to the fulfillment and reality of the promise, there's a time lapse. So how should I live in that moment? And I'm gonna look at three things here. And the first one, we can, how to live in this difficult time, is to build a meaningful life where God has planted us. You know, despair and discouragement 
can cause us to put our lives on hold, to live in hurt, anger, and in bitterness. I see people living like this. It breaks my heart. Do you know the power of forgiveness is so great, it sets the forgiver free. That's what's so beautiful about it. God wants us to move past life's disappointments and even the moments where God is currently maybe disciplining us. We can be going through seasons of discipline. How do we prepare for mean, a meaningful future? Well, one thing we need to understand, in our current situation, there's a purpose in it. And sometimes it's even beyond our comprehension. You know, I said to myself, why did I have to have a kidney stone move on a Sunday morning? There are six other days in the week, right? You know, I'm already living in a fishbowl, Lord. Let's just keep it going, right? So I'm sitting here. I don't comprehend this. But one thing that came out of it is we need to do a better job if we are looking for medical people to help us in a time of emergency. So that's an upside to it. There's always a silver lining in the middle of our challenge. You know, I was reading the story of Joseph this morning. And he was revealing himself to his brothers. I love that story of Joseph. Maybe, do you guys love that story? Isn't that such a beautiful story? But you, can you imagine, you know, Joseph, he's 17 years old. He's had these amazing dreams. Then all of a sudden, his brothers sell, sell him into slavery. And, you know, his life gets going. I mean, it's always, it's, it's just a terrible time in his life. He gets falsely accused. He gets put in prison. He gets forgotten. You know, all the time, it just seems like, is there any meaning to my life? And his dreams that he had are now seemingly a mockery. Isn't that true? Can you see it? Sitting in prison going, forsaken, forgotten. But God had a plan. And eventually he gets raised out of prison because he interprets the Pharaoh's dreams. He gets put into position to be second in the land. And then he understands Pharaoh's dreams as seven years of prosperity and then seven years of famine that was gonna negate the prosperity. And his brothers show up hungry. And eventually he reveals himself to his brothers. And what does he tell them? He says to them, don't blame yourself. God sent me here before you. Who did? God did. God had a plan. God wanted to build a great nation and he wants to save our whole family. That's why God brought me here to prepare a way for you. Now how many, when you're looking at Joseph's life where he was looking at it in prison, he could never see the good plan that God really had for his future. Could he not? Probably not. He couldn't see it. And a lot of times that's what happens to us. We're stuck here, but we can't see what God intends here. And it's an amazing thing. God says, I have a good plan for you as we're about to see. Now, However, for the Jewish uh, exiles, they went to Babylon because of their rebellion and resistance to God. They were idolaters. They would not repent. God had to discipline them. But he had a plan for them in spite of their rebellion. Isn't this good to know when you're a child of God and you're rebelling? God still has a plan for you. Even though he'll discipline you, he'll do that. But they had to learn submission, something they continuously resisted. How many know we have to learn the lesson of submission in the Christian life? It's very difficult in this culture to teach people to submit. It's going against the grain of our society today. How many say that's true? We're having a problem with this word, right? Let's be honest. Let's say yes, that's true. Submitting is not easy, especially when we have to submit to somebody 
we don't agree with or we don't like. Come on. No amens to this? Well, sure, it's difficult. But I want to point out something to us. So they needed to submit to God and embrace their covenantal obligations to God because God was good on his side, but they were always rebelling on their side. So the question I raise is, who brought the exiles to Babylon? Well, the obvious answer is, well, Nebuchadnezzar did. But I want you to notice verse four. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, to all those I carried into exile. Who carried them into exile? God did. So even though Nebuchadnezzar was God's agent and instrument in doing that, and even though Nebuchadnezzar had no idea it was God's instrument or agent, he was just doing his own thing, but God was using him to accomplish his big purpose of disciplining his people, right? Now, in light of all of that, you know, this chastisement is gonna last 70 years. That's a long time. So what should, have been their, what should their response be? Well, Jeremiah now writes this letter and he tells them because he's, they're having problems in Babylon. The temptation is to rebel there too. And people are rebelling. Other groups are rebelling against the king of Babylon. So Jeremiah says this, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase the number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Hmm, let's unpack this. These are kind of shocking words to them. Starts out with build houses, have families. The generation in now Babylon would probably be buried there. Most of them, some would survive, but most of them wouldn't make it. The the promise of restoration would not happen in their lifetime. Now, how many North Americans could handle if God gave you a promise and said, oh, by the way, it's going to happen in your grandchildren's life? You know, most of us, we would would be uptight about that, you know, because we're thinking short-term. God's a long-term planner, okay? He's looking at generations. He's not just looking at you and me. He's looking at our children and our grandchildren and their children if Jesus so tarries. He's got a bigger plan, guys. And what we're doing now is gonna affect what's gonna happen in their lives. So we need to make good decisions. You know, often people are captured by the hour that they're in and they allow the circumstances to define and direct their lives rather than to let God's commands and promises be the guiding course of their lives. So what promises is God making in your life? Are you seeking him? Are you hearing the voice of God? Are you finding the word of God coming to you and giving you these promises and then hanging on to them? But the second part, I think, was a lot harder for them, a harder pill to swallow. Listen to what he says. Seek the welfare of your captors. Oh, seek the welfare of your, gen, of, of your enemies. Now, how many go, ah, oh, it's a little tougher. You know, like a lot of times when you have an enemy, you feel like you're in an adversarial role with this person. And now God is saying, no, no, I want you to seek their good. I want you to pray for them. I want you to bless them. You know, do you, you, you're hearing some tones from the New Testament. You, where do you think these ideas come from? The Old Testament. You see, God is teaching a powerful lesson. We need to learn this lesson, and I think we need to learn it again in this generation. You know, there are people that you're not happy with. There are people you don't agree with. There may be people in authority you don't like, but we should be praying for their well-being. That's what I'm reading here. 
Actually, I'm going to argue that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego read this letter or heard about this letter because Daniel in chapter 9, verse 2, talks about when the 70 years were up that Jeremiah had said. It's quoted right there in Daniel. So Daniel took to heart these words. And what did Daniel and his friends do? They sought the welfare of Babylon. Did they not? Yeah, they were administrators there. Hmm. I think that's amazing. So Philip Ryken says this. He says the Revised Standard Version probably best captures the sense of the Hebrew word there. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare, you will find your welfare. That reoccurring word welfare is the word shalom. You know, but when we, you know, seek the peace of the city. But we don't understand that word shalom. It's, it's far more comprehensive as a matter of fact, it's, it's more than just the absence of conflict and death, says Clifford Green. This rich term fills out the word community by embracing, when you say shalom to somebody, you're, you're asking for their well-being, their contentment, their wholeness, their health, their prosperity, their safety, their rest. This is a big, I, I'm unpacking the definition of this word shalom. It means harmony, order, happiness. It means that all is right with the city. Wouldn't it be awesome to be able to say that you and I are seeking the shalom of Red Deer, that we're seeking its order, its harmony, its happiness, its well-being, its contentment. I am convinced that the people that should be the most uh, beneficial citizens of this community are the people I'm looking at, you and me. We should be salt in our city. We should be the light. We should be the hope-filled. We should be the blessers. We should be the encouragers. We should be the comforters. Isn't that powerful? And we should be doing that in our country. You know, it should be moving beyond that. You know, Isaiah, I, I, I believe, reminds us that we are to be agents of God. Listen to what he says here in chapter 61. He's reminding of God's restorative power in our lives by expressing that by God's spirit anointing, you and I, his servants, are to proclaim the mess, the good news to the poor. You and I should be communicating to people in need. There's good news for you. We should be binding up the brokenhearted. We should be proclaiming freedom to the captives, release for the prisoners. We are to proclaim God's year of favor, but we also should be warning of God's judgment to come. We should be comforting the mourning, providing for the grieving. And as a result, God's going to give a crown of beauty instead of ashes. How many would love to get a crown of beauty instead of ashes? You go, man, my life is a pile of ashes right now. God wants to restore. He wants to give the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I love this. God's desire is to rebuild, restore, renew. Isn't that powerful? And he said that about the devastated cities of, of, of Israel, but it's also a picture of our lives. If we fail God, what happens? Devastation is the result of that. But God is in the restoration business. He wants to restore what's been damaged. So you know, you, you and I come to God and maybe our lives are broken and there's things that aren't right. God wants to heal those things. God wants to restore. He wants to renew. He wants to build up. How powerful is that? You know, I, I think God's amazing. You can tell I'm impressed with him. You know, he's able to do these amazing things, you know. And then he, and then he's, then he says this, but don't listen to the false messages. Don't embrace false hope. We hear these amazing promises, and yet we can decide, I'm going to take a shortcut to them. 
And I've discovered one thing about God. God's not in the shortcut business. As a matter of fact, I was reading years ago in Eugene Peterson's translation of Sermon on the Mount. He said, God, he said, there's no shortcuts to God. And that's true. It's a journey, folks. You know, to help you and I become like him. <laughs> you can't take a shortcut to becoming like Jesus. You know, you can't just microwave people into Christianity. You know, it's more of a crock pot kind of a thing. It takes time for it to happen, right? It's a journey, you know? So he goes on and he says to them, you, 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 you know, a lot of times we are deceived because we want to believe the lie. And I talked about that last week. But let's look what he goes on to say. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Don't let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. You see, when you're listening to lies, they'll just keep telling you them. You're encouraging it. So be careful what you are desiring. I want God's will. I want God's program. I want God's agenda. And I pray that you do too. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I've not even sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Isn't that beautiful? But the part that they didn't like was 70 years. They want it done now. How many know they were kind of like our generation? We want everything done instantaneously. They want it to be brought back home now. But you know, sometimes with God, it takes time. Why? Because he was trying to develop something inside of their lives. He was trying to break something inside of their lives. That was their rebellion. That was their lack of submission. You know, God has to break us in order for us to really be used by him. I don't know if you know that. That's the way it works. He has to get us to the place of submission, and it's hard for some of us. Then it says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. This is the context of that beautiful verse. But then I want you to notice what follows. You know, usually we stop here, right? How do we secure God's promises? Then you will call on me and I will come and pray to me and I will listen to you. If you call, I will come. If you pray, I will listen. Don't you love that? He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You know what God wants? Wholehearted devotion. You know, a lot of times we're just half-hearted. Come on, let's be honest. Can we get half-hearted about it? Sure we can. God wants wholehearted devotion. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So I see that prayer is in order to connect with God. Why is he asking them to pray? Well, because what had happened before the captivity was they had forsaken God. They had worshiped idols. So now God brings them into captivity and he says the only way out is submission, a change of mind, and a seeking of God's face. You know, we can, there's a lot of situations in our life that could be turned around if we really sought God wholeheartedly. That's a key. Let me... So whatever captivity you're experiencing in your life, prayer is the most important response to the crisis because God listens. God hears our prayers. And we get to know him and his ways. Let me move on to the second thing. We need to embrace God's promise. Okay, the first is build a bloom where you're planted. I could have said that. Second one is embrace God's promise. Really simple. So what is the foundation that my life is built on in your life? 
What foundation are we building on? Human ingenuity? Confidence in ourselves or others? Confidence in science? Listen to what Jesus said. He was being tempted to illegitimately meet his own need to put the material need ahead of his spiritual life when he is tempted to turn stones into bread. Remember that story? In the wilderness. What was Jesus' response? He's quoting Deuteronomy. He says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, eating and providing materially is not enough to sustain earthly life. There's a dimension that's needed. It's a spiritual dimension. And what sustains you and I in the most painful and confusing and dangerous and trying times is God's word. And his promises stand true through all generations. But today there's an amazing attack on God's word. You know that? And what's really sad is it's coming from within the church. We have things like progressive Christianity. We have all kinds of distorted ideas. Let me, let me encourage us right now. Listen to what the book of Isaiah writes for us. I love this verse. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Amen. Jesus said, heaven and earth will perish, but my word abides. Can I tell you something? If you're building your life on the word of God, it's a sure foundation. Now listen to what it's gonna say in the book of Matthew. He said, the storms of life will come. I guarantee you there's storms coming. But if you build your life on the word of God, your, your whole life is, I'm embracing it, I'm learning it, I'm applying it, I'm living it. You, the storm will come and you will stand. But there's a lot of people, they just hear the word of God, they're not doers of it. Storm will come, you'll collapse. It's not enough just to hear it, we have to apply it. It has to be put into practice in our lives. That's what it means to stand on the word of God. Jeremiah continues, and, he, and he's basically made the promise, I'll bring you back in 70 years, and my plan for you is to, is to help you and prosper you and to bless you and give you a future. But Jeremiah is warning them not to forsake God in their captivity. Because this is, this is their response. You may say, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. And, they, and there were prophets in Babylon, but they weren't all true ones. Uh, Ezekiel was a prophet in Babylon. He was a good prophet. But we're going to read about three other guys that are not so nice. But this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in the city, your fellow citizens who did not go with you into exile. So they were saying it would be better to be back in Jerusalem. God says, not so. Notice what he says. This is what the Lord says. I, I will send sword, famine, and plague against them, and I will make them like figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. In other words, these guys are rotten to the core, and I'm going to judge them. You don't want to be in Jerusalem right now. You're safer in Babylon. That's what he's telling them. Verse 18, I will pursue them with the sword, famine, and plague, and I will make them abhor to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse and an object of horror, of scorn, of reproach, among all the nations where I drive them. In other words, I'm going to just flatten them. As a matter of fact, when they rebelled, Nebuchadnezzar came back and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. It was a terrible, brutal thing that happened. For they, were, they, for they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord. It's words that I sent to them again and again but my, by my servants, the prophets. And you exiles, if you think you're better than them, no, you're not. You've not listened. That's why you're there in exile, declares the Lord, right? So Jeremiah is expressing concern that they were going to reject God's counsel and embrace the new set of lies that were being advocated by these false prophets. So let's take a look at the final thing 
we need to learn while living in difficult times. And that's to reject the false hope promoted by false messengers. And we have tons of them today. Everybody has a solution, an answer, a direction, but they may not all be from God. We better make sure that we're hearing from God and not all these other voices. Let us take inventory and examine our hearts. What is it that I want to believe? That's an important point. Is it what God is promising? You know, sometimes our desires overrule what God is actually promising. It's true. So I need to discern and say, God, what is it that you really are promising so that I can embrace your promises and not what I desire? Because I've seen people, you know, twist the word of God to suit themselves so often. We need to be the people who say, not my will, but thine be done. I want to know your agenda. I want to be on your plan. Learn the lesson of judgment against those who promote sin. And we're introduced immediately to two false prophets who were an affront to God, and they were severely judged. They ended up being burned to death. Look at verse 20. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles, whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about Ahab and Zedekiah, who prophesied lies to you in my name. I'm going to deliver him to the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will put them to death before your very eyes. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to be used of God again to punish these two false prophets. Because of them, all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon will use this curse. May the Lord treat you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon burned in the fire. That's a curse saying. What he's saying is, you know, how many get the idea Nebuchadnezzar likes furnaces? Have you read that story of the, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That's the way he liked to get rid of people. These two guys, they burned. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they walked out. So that tells me something. If we obey God, we're coming out of the fire. If you're disobeying God and causing other people to disobey God, you're going to end up getting fried. That's kind of what the story tells me here. So I know it's a little graphic, but, you know, we need to hear that. They have done outrageous things in Israel. They've committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and in my name they have uttered lies, which I did not authorize. I know it, and I'm a witness to it, declares the Lord. God says, I see what they're doing. Now, John Thompson, who's an Old Testament scholar, he points out, you know, Nebuchadnezzar didn't kill these guys because they committed adultery. That was, God was upset about that. Nebuchadnezzar could have cared less. But you know what? He says this, there was something else. They seem to have been involved in some political offense such as encouraging the people to revolt. Now that'll cost you your life, especially when you're revolting against an autocrat like Nebuchadnezzar. So what he's telling the exiles is don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar because he's God's instrument in disciplining you. And if you rebel against that and you don't submit to that, you will be destroyed. That's what the message is from Jeremiah, which is really God's message to the, to the people there. Now, Good old Jeremiah, what a life. He's now going to be slammed by the prophets from Babylon now because they don't like the fact that he's sending a message and telling the people to settle down, settle in, don't revolt, right? So this is what happens in verse 24. Tell Shemei the Nehalamite, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. You sent letters in your own name to all the people in Jerusalem. Notice he probably said it in the name of God, but he's going, no, no, your own name. To the priest Zephaniah, son of Messiah, and to all the other priests, and you said to Zephaniah, the Lord has appointed you priests in this place of Jehoadad to be in charge of the house of the Lord. Now, this is my advice. Put 
any maniac who acts like a prophet into the stocks of next iron. Now, who do you think he's talking about? Well, the next line tells me. So why have you not reprimanded Jeremiah from Anathop, who poses as a prophet among you? So what is he doing? This is the false prophet saying to these people back in Jerusalem, you're letting this guy in the loose? He's, he's a nutcase, and he's a false prophet. You should be dealing with this guy, because he's bugging us here in Babylon. How many see the story? Okay, see what's going on. So he's trying to defame uh, Jeremiah. He has sent this message to us in Babylon. It's going to be a long time. Therefore, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat, eat what they produce. Zephaniah the priest, however, read the letter to Jeremiah the prophet. I guess he bought into Jeremiah's messaging. So this is a good guy. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. One more letter going back to Babylon. Little correspondence here between Jerusalem and Babylon. Send this message to all the exiles. This is what the Lord says about Shimei the Nihalamite, because Shimei has prophesied to you even though I did not send him and has persuaded you to trust in lies. This is what the Lord said, I will surely punish him and his descendants. He will have no one left among this people. Nor will he see the good things I will do for my people, declares the Lord, because he has preached rebellion against whom? Against whom? Against me. Who's the me? God. Well, wait a minute. He's preaching rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar. No, that's what it sounds like he's doing. He's telling them to revolt against the Babylonians. But in reality, he's preaching rebellion against God. Why is he preaching rebellion against God? Because God says, this is what I want to accomplish. Nebuchadnezzar is the leader I raised up as my agent to discipline my people, and you're actually preaching rebellion, not against Babylon. You're preaching rebellion against me. So how does that apply to us, Pastor? Real simple. Be careful when you're rebelling against authority that you're actually not rebelling against God. And just because you don't like the authority, you could be rebelling against God. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting more deeply concerned because maybe I've studied a lot of history. But you, what you need to understand is when you create a culture that's in a constant state of revolt and rebellion, it creates anarchy. And when there's no rules and no authority, you have everything going on. Everybody's in danger. And if you do any studying whatsoever, anarchy is a terrible state. I would even argue a bad government is better than no government. Okay, so, the problem with false prophets is that they create false hope which leads to despair and hopelessness. While the message of Jeremiah's call for submission to God's purposes is about to bring about a powerful hope for the future. Walter Brueggemann summarizes it this way, and I, I think this is important, we need to hear this, because he says against both illusionary expectation, which is like, we're all gonna be back in Jerusalem in no time flat, Babylon's done, and despairing resignation means, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna, fade away here in Babylon, and there's nothing, we have no life. Jeremiah speaks of God's powerful governance which both settle into exile. In other words, he's saying, here's my purpose. Settle down, settle in, do good while you're there, and I'm gonna bring an end to this exile. I promise you that. It's just gonna take longer than you want, okay? 
He goes on to say, the purposes of God cannot be trimmed and fitted to any political resolution, either falsely assuring or misleadingly negating God as God's, has God's way, which is utter freedom and in the end, carrying fidelity. So what is Brueggemann really saying? Simply God's way transcends politics. I think, so, you know, I'm not against politics, but I'm, sometimes we get enamored with it. God's way transcends it. The end result of obeying God will be to be experiencing freedom in the end and experiencing God's gracious care. We better embrace God's way. It may appear that Jeremiah's political position is pro-Babylonian, but what Jeremiah is saying rises above that. Babylonians, Babylon is only a tool, and it has a limited shelf life. God's gonna use this nation for a short period of time, and then he's gonna judge Babylon. Did you realize that? Warren Worsby says, <clears throat> says it this way. What life does to us depends largely on what life finds in us. If we seek the Lord and want his best, then circumstances will build us and prepare us for what he's planned. What is he saying? He's basically saying, listen, what's in you is gonna come out. So we can't allow circumstances to define our lives. And then he goes on to say this, if we rebel or if we look for quick and easy shortcuts, then circumstances will destroy us and rob us of the future God wants us to enjoy. The same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. What's he saying? He's saying the same circumstances has totally different impact on people. I'm gonna argue it this way. People can be in a crisis. Two different people can be in the same crisis. One is maturing and developing and growing and the other person is falling apart and is angry and becomes bitter and is destroyed by it. One person becomes better, the other person becomes bitter. So he says, God's thoughts and plans concerning us come from his heart and they lead to peace. Why look for substitutes? So it's interesting to me, and I've already said it in closing here, <clears throat> that these three or four young men heard this message of Dan, uh, Jeremiah. I'm, I'm convinced of it. If you want to argue with me, go to Daniel chapter nine, verse two. Daniel, uh, Daniel says he was reading from Jeremiah. These young men took to heart what Jeremiah said. What did they do? They embraced their situation. They were even, their names were even changed to be Babylonian names. Do you realize that? Isn't that interesting? They, the, the Babylonians tried to enculturate them. But these young people always did what was in the best interest of the Babylonians, except for when it came to their faith in God. That's where the line was drawn. And we can see that they resisted that because when they were challenged to be idolaters, they said, no, we cannot do that, even at the expense of our lives. But up until that point, everything else was submit to the Babylonians and seek the welfare of the city. I think there's a lesson for us to learn in all of this. So let's stand as we close. <clears throat> Even in our difficult times in our earthly Babylon, that's where we're living right now, what can we learn? Bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. Two, embrace God's promises. Right? Three, avoid false messaging. Don't buy the lie. 
and seek the well-being of the people around us. You know, if we would be busy doing what we should be doing as the church, we would impact our country. Do you believe that? I do. I believe that you and I should be the most wonderful people in our community. We should be advancing our city. Our city should be prospering because we're giving our lives to enhance it. Our province, our nation. Can we see that? That's what we should be doing. Let's serve the people around us. Not because we agree with them. Not because they deserve it. Because God's called us to it. And we're doing it for Him. And when you start serving with that attitude, it's amazing what can start happening. You will influence people. People will start listening to you. Right? Look at Daniel's life. Don't you think he influenced people? Totally. He was influencing the leaders. Powerful stuff, guys. He took it to heart. God used them. Amen? But I'll tell you one of the things we need to understand. If we're just sitting here waiting for things to change and waiting for promises, what should we be doing in the meantime? My answer, seek God wholeheartedly. Seek God wholeheartedly. That's when you'll get to know Him. And then all of this makes more sense. So with every head bowed, I believe God's speaking to hearts today. Here's the heart of the message, really. What is God saying to us? You need to learn submission. You need to learn submission. How many here say, I resist? Submission is not my strong suit, Pastor. Is that you? Raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you right now. Submission is not my strong suit. God's got to change that in our hearts. We have to learn to submit to his word. You know, if it says, you know, I need to obey my parents, then I need to submit. Unless they're asking me to do something illegal or immoral. That's how I look at the government. If they're asking me to do something that's not illegal or immoral, I submit. Because I know if I'm not submitting, I'm actually resisting not the government, but God. Can we see that? And I think Christians are having a hard time with this right now. We're struggling with submission. So Father, I pray right now that you will give us a change of thinking, which is what repentance is, and a change of attitude and heart, Father, so that we will learn to be the best possible citizens, the best possible spouses, the best possible children, the best possible parents, employees, employers. Lord, we should be models of what it's like to be your children on this planet because we're not gonna stay here forever. We, you have promised us a future that is so much better than what we have here below. Help us, Lord, while we are here to make a significant difference. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave.